The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Uh, Scott Masson is uh, an associate pastor here at Westminster Chapel. He's a fellow of the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity, as well as being professor of English at uh, the University of Tyndale, Tyndale University, right here in the city. Scott's uh, doctoral studies focused on literary theory and hermeneutics, and so he is uh, well accustomed to uh, engaging the hermeneutical challenges of communicating the gospel in our culture today, and to that end he can often be heard on 6.40 a.m. on the Culture Wars on a Tuesday morning on the John Oakley Show, and uh, Scott is going to be addressing tonight, Is Jesus the Only Way to God? So let's welcome Scott Masson. Well, thanks very much, Joe, and uh, great to be with you all this, uh, this evening. It's a little more sultry than I would have liked, but... I want to start off by um, reiterating what Roger said at the outset about our desire for feedback on uh, this series. We have gone a slightly different path uh, this summer than we have in years past, so uh, feedback would most certainly be welcome. And we decided quite consciously to frame this summer series as a response to a series of skeptical questions about the Christian faith because it's our sense that in the public square all too often it's simply assumed that the skeptics must be correct. Simply assumed. And in fact, those that present these views aren't even presented as skeptics. They're simply presented as thinking people. And the way it's usually presented is that it is, quote, unthinkable that what Christians say about Jesus Christ and about uh, the Christian faith could be true. And I think it's a brilliant tactic. It's, It's actually brilliant. If, if with the weight of the public institutional authority, say a broadcaster like the CBC, or if you can get professors in universities, and you can get uh, even theologians or pastors that will say that the traditional view of the gospel that we see in, um, in the Bible is simply unthinkable, then the majority of people simply are not going to think about it. You're just not going to think about it. And that is, I think it's actually particularly the case in Canada. Uh, we, because we have a, a deference to authority here which is deeply ingrained in our culture in a way that it's not in our neighbors to the south, for instance. Remember, the motto of Canada isn't life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's, it's peace, order, and good government. Um, some would say that both countries are in need of a, good mo- a new motto. Peace, order, and good government. Not sure about that one anymore. Um, a little false advertising, but as somebody, as Joe said, who uh, as an academic opposes these uh, thoughtful powers that be in Canada, I find it, and I have to confess, it's difficult to represent the Christian faith, not because it's not clear and not that it can't be defended, but because from the get-go when you speak about the faith in public, and you'll know this yourselves if you are Christians, you are immediately beginning from the vantage point of public ridicule because the Christian faith is unthinkable. What it says must be unthinkable. So thank you for coming this evening and subjecting yourselves to the position of public ridicule simply by showing up here. You're going to hear something absolutely ridiculous. And I'm going to say something absolutely ridiculous. Um, Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Acts 
uh, chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. That's going to be my text for this evening, well-known text to uh, some of you. This is uh, the Apostle Paul speaking in Athens. Now, Athens, I'll just say a few preparatory comments. Athens is the center of intellectual life in the ancient world. It remains so, even though we're in the Roman Empire by the time this takes place. There are four significant schools of philosophy there. There's Plato's um, Academy, there's uh, Aristotle's Lyceum, there's Epicurus's uh, Garden, and then there's Zeno's Painted Porch. Four um, hugely significant philosophical schools right there in Athens, and Paul is speaking there. And I read, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very superstitious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is, not, he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, 
and others with them. So ends the reading of God's word. Now, as Roger said, this is the final installment in this uh, year's summer fellowship series, but in many ways it could and maybe ought to have been the first because of its subject. The answer to this week's question, is there only one way to God, will determine how relevant uh, the answers to the other questions are to us. If there is more than one way to God, or if it's possible to be accepted by God without any conscious action on our part, or simply according to whatever limited knowledge we have, he's going to judge according to that, then the urgency and the interest in this question is going to fade. And largely because we live in a world in Canada, and not just in Canada, throughout the Western world, which is profoundly cynical about truth claims, I need to preface my discussion preface it by addressing what I call, I'm going to call the stinking fish argument. Stinking fish argument, very common in our day. It's not actually an intellectual argument at all, um, but it's nonetheless powerful, just like a stinking fish. You, if you're in a room with a stinking fish, you're going to notice that you can't ignore it. It's there all the time. The smell is oppressive. Now, a stinking fish argument effectively states that whenever you find two similar things, the purer one must be an imitation of the fouler one. The one that smells worse is the real one. It hasn't been sanitized. It hasn't been cleaned up to look good. And it hasn't been had perfume sprayed on it to make it smell good. That's the real one. The one that's the foul one is the real one. Now let me give you an illustration of this, because I'm sure you've never heard of a stinking fish argument. Um, not just of the stinking fish, but the effect of the stinking fish. Uh, it was once only the radical feminists who said this, that a husband making love to his wife is doing the, quote, the same thing that a rapist does to his victim, or that a John does to a prostitute. It's the same thing, according to the radical feminists. Now this was a lunatic fringe position at one point. But now you hear something similar to this all the time. People may not articulate it, but something very similar to it. According to that understanding, marriage is simply a form of legitimized rape. It's a legitimized and subordinated rape. So the sex act defines it to the exclusion of anything else about the marital act. Uh, the feminists are saying, let's just call it what it really is. And so what has, it has happened is the, the definition of marriage has been reduced. Uh, in public discussions of marriage, we don't talk about the unity of two persons in one flesh. We don't talk about the procreation of marriage, uh, procreation of children, rather. There's no sacramental significance. Um, there is nothing of lifelong fidelity till death do us part as an essential characteristic of marriage. It is a close relationship. That's what defines marriage in these public discussions. A close relationship between two adults. And when we don't feel close anymore, then the, the relationship can end. This is the result of stinking fish logic. The, 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 the pure thing has been interpreted in light of the foul thing and reduced to it. 
Now, this stinking fish logic has been used also to eliminate the sexual mores of Christendom. And with it, it's removed the social significance of the family as the fundamental social uh, unit of all society. I don't think what I'm saying is new to you, but maybe the, the tactic may sound somewhat unfamiliar. <clears throat> and yet, I think it probably resonates. And accordingly, we find an increasing movement not just to uh, change the definition of marriage, but also to soften the legal sanction for the crime of rape, for instance. Now you get something like two years. In scripture, it's, you, it's punishable by death. It was once so in common law here in Canada as well. So the sanction against violation has softened. Uh, similarly, you'll see that there is a, a movement, and it's a very strong one, to legalize prostitution. So all of the sanctions that were once attached around marriage have, because of the stinking fish argument, reduced everything to the mere sexual act, and then basically it's just a matter of consent, and that's not much anyway. So that changes everything. Uh, and I'll have you note that eliminating the difference between marriage and prostitution doesn't elevate prostitution, it just simply pushes marriage into the muck. Now the same sort of thing can be seen with religious claims, except that it happens in, the, in an opposite fashion. It goes through what I will call the, the, the clean slate process. And I'll read something from you here. Now let me talk first of all about Orthodox Christian doctrine, and then I'm going to talk about the movement away from it, not through the stinking fish argument, but rather through an appeal to something, uh, a clean slate approach. So core Christian, Christian doctrine is that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We call that the doctrine of the Trinity. Now in the Enlightenment period, 17th, 18th century, a movement came about to clean this up. The idea of the Trinity seemed uh, opaque, it didn't seem very rational, according to certain standards of, of reasoning. And as a result, they tried to uh, make it more appealing to the natural mind, because there was a, an attack on the authority of Scripture. Let's make it a, in accordance with natural reason without re reference to Scripture. And as a consequence, we got what was called Unitarianism, there's just one God. Now, in Orthodox Christianity, the eternal reality of the Godhead has included in its very nature the fellowship of the three persons of the Trinity. The Father has always loved the Son, the Son has always loved the Father in return, and their spirit is the eternal spirit of that love, God himself, an infinite third. Now, once Unitarian uh, uh, belief comes along, at least initially, God's still interested in us, he's still interested but it turns out there's no real grounded reason for him to be interested. And so one day he just takes off. He takes off and there's, there we are, the foundling race left on our own. Ours was a planet full of children, uh, ditched by dad just like most, uh, at least so many uh, kids are today, ditched by dad. And that's how we got basic deism. Now after... God had been gone a while, it became easy to assert that he'd never really been around at all. So the older kids, now you understand I'm using an analogy here, uh, 
they just said that the younger to younger kids that it was just a dad myth. It was a dad myth, the kind of tale so often told in primitive tribes, so that or so clever uh, scholars in anthropological studies will tell us. It's just a dad myth, a dad myth like we see in other places. And then all sorts of ingenious explanations are offered to explain how it was that our family just sort of happened, and then the little kids bought it. And that's in deism. So we start off with the father of Jesus Christ, the giver of the Holy Spirit. Then we move to a Unitarian clockmaker God who uh, watches his clock and who's willing to do repairs from time to time, you know, little miraculous interventions, but basically he's just wound up the clock and he's watching it. And that's the God of the deists, one who initially made the clock, wound it up, then, then leaves, and then unfortunately left no forwarding address. And after he'd been gone a while, it was decided by general, very, very scientific consensus that clocks can assemble themselves. They didn't need a watchmaker. Clocks can assemble themselves. Who needed a clockmaker after all? The thing works. It's there. And this was the beginning of modern atheism. Uh, and a scientific and rational atheism emerges. And then after a few generations, we're hitting the 20th century now, uh, we're, we're teetering on the age of postmodern atheism, what we have in our day. One that denies that any ultimate clockmaker has the right to manufacture any meta-narrative whatsoever. That's the age in which we lived. In other words, what I'm portraying here with this attempt to go back to a clean slate is a drift away from the God of Scripture, the triune God of Scripture, to try and get to a higher thing, and what we end up with is an entirely debased thing. We end up with a stinking fish again. It just doesn't come through the appeal of the stinking fish right away. But we end up precisely with the same thing. And so those today will say that, um, and now they can make the direct stinking fish analogy, they'll just say, the fact that there are, are abusive cults and the fact that there are religious charlatans out there uh, means that there can't, cannot possibly be a god. There cannot possibly be anything like true religion. It's not possible. And according to the same smelly uh, logic, atheists now push to have their own chaplains in prisons, in the military, in the university, everywhere. I mean, if Christians are going to have chaplains, then why can't the atheists? Now, this tendency, I think, is quite extraordinary. And it's rooted in something other than a straight and dispassionate analysis of the facts. In fact, uh, if you debate with people or discuss people uh, the facts of the Bible, of Christian history, you will find that you don't get arguments you did, you don't, anymore. At one point you did. Now you simply get variations on what I call the stinking fish argument. Christianity is just, you know, you're, you're cleaning up of something that really, quite frankly, stinks. And they'll just say it's been demonstrated so. Everyone knows this. And we'll dismiss any arguments that don't, don't fit with what sociologists call my confirmation bias. Now, a, a confirmation bias if you haven't heard the term before, is simply the term that uh, academics use to describe a tendency people have to filter information. If it confirms my bias, then I listen to it. If it doesn't confirm it, 
then I dismiss it. I ignore it. If I think that Christianity is a stinking fish, then I'm going to ignore all evidence to the contrary. But note that the tendency to see it as a stinking fish has no rational basis to begin with. It's just a bias I have, that the world is simply like that. Now, this is a consequence, I don't want to go too far off track on this, because then I get into my discipline, but this is a consequence of literary theory for the past 40 years. It's called deconstruction. It's the attempt to uh, go after what, what they call logocentrism, the centrality of the word throughout Western history. And they're trying to subvert any, what they will call, and this, forgive me here, the technical term, any transcendental reference. So no good, no truth, no beauty, no God, nothing ultimate, nothing metaphysical, if you will. These have been resolutely attacked for the past 40 years, and then we're left with something like what John Lennon once sang about, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you can, right? It's easy course it is. And all we're left with is the brotherhood of man. Well, you can decide for yourself whether we're in the midst of the brotherhood of man in our day. Uh, but this is not just the, uh, a lunatic fringe anymore that, say, that says these things. This is the main rhetorical tactic uh, that you will find in the public square by everyone. It's this, this stinking fish argument. We need to get rid of the Christian faith because, quite frankly, it's, it can't possibly be true. It can't possibly be. Because they think that the, the rotten thing is the real thing, and the pure thing is just a fiction to keep people in Christian power. It's a power move. So we need to get rid of this stinking fish out of our heads before we begin. You may wonder why I spent so much time on this. I think this is the main objection in our day. It's not a rational objection. It's just can't possibly be right because nothing, there is no good, there is no truth, there's no beauty, there is no God, there can't be. Look around us. They assume that what is rotten is more real than what is whole and healthy. Now this stinking fish is the product of our age. It's the worldview of our age coming, uh, chicks have come home to roost on it. They think that the material world is the real world and by referring to it we can explain everything around us. Once you start to do that, then what you have done is that you've taken what the Bible calls sin and evil and you've normalized it. You've made it a part of the world around us. What you also do, however, is you have no reference to anything that doesn't belong to what you see around you. No reference to God, no reference to truth, beauty, justice, goodness. You have no reference to those things. You dispute them because they don't conform to what you regard as the real reality, which is the stinking fish, the material thing. And as a consequence, you can't even, you can't even uh, argue or, or rail against injustice or corruption or degradation or wronghood or falsehood or ugliness. You've got nothing to say. If the world is unjust, well, of course it's unjust. You just can't call it unjust. It is the way it is. It just is. But the reality is, as we know, people do sense injustice, right? People do think that's wrong. 
people do think, you know, that is really disgusting. You can't have a sense of that's disgusting unless you think there's something beautiful. You can't say that that's unjust unless you have a concept of justice. So we know that it's there, but that idea doesn't come from the stinking fish argument. It comes from somewhere else. And we're right, by the way, in assuming that there is something better than that. Okay, so having pilloried the view, which I think I did quite rightly, you can tell me whether I did well on it. Let me just give Grant something to what is being said here. Something. Even if it's unreasonably biased against the reality of God, of goodness, of truth, of beauty, of justice, all the things that we Christians declare about God. It's certainly true that we, we human beings judge and operate according to our, our prejudices. Now, I'm using prejudices here in a very broad sense. Prejudice in the sense of a, a, a prior judgment. We can't operate without them. We, we do it all the time. When we walk along the street, we have a... My prejudice when I see the light, green means go, I can walk. I haven't thought about it, but I already have uh, been taught long enough, so I just operate according to the world, according to these predetermined biases, but I don't even think about them. For finite beings, they're impossible to avoid. There was a time in the Enlightenment where they tried to get rid of all prejudices. In fact, they had a prejudice against prejudice. They, wanted, they said, all prejudices are evil. Well, how about the prejudice against prejudice? Well, yeah, that's the most evil. We've seen it in the clean slate argument. Try to get rid of them all. Well, now nobody, everyone knows that that's impossible. We've got to have prejudices. We have to have them. We need to do what uh, is a bad word these days. We need to profile. We need, we need to profile, not just people, but things. We need to judge and make good judgments. But profiling has a bad rap, and it's for good reason that it has a bad rap we're painfully aware that our tendency to judge is not only fallible, it's often motivated by less than savory considerations. Christians call it sin. The, the tendency to judge, not according to the rightness of things, but according to what's going to benefit us, that's what Christians call sin. We think it's going to benefit us somehow. And now this for me, I came to faith in the first year of my PhD. Joe alluded to the fact that I did literary theory. I studied under Britain's best known deconstructionist. And I started my PhD as one. And I then came to faith in that first year. You can imagine the conflict there. He was actually a good man and managed to, we managed to survive it together. But um, it's precisely this about the Christian faith that really moved me. Um, because when we think about the Christian faith, we don't think about uh, the manger, although we do talk about that. We don't talk, think about the Bible, at least not first thing. The first thing we think about is the cross. It's the universally uh, understood symbol of the Christian faith. And it's the self-giving, atoning love, the the... Uh, the penal substitution, which we talked about in our song, that we see at the cross, which so wholly contradicts 
what I just talked about, profiling, where we do things and we judge according to what we think is going to be to our advantage. What advantage was there to Jesus Christ when he said, I'm going to the cross? It's not that just that he was put to it, he said, I'm going to it. And when he went to it and was put there by his enemies, he said, Father, they know not what they do, forgive them. He didn't just, there's, what's in it for him, personally? Absolutely nothing. At the moment of his death, he asks his enemies to be forgiven. Totally breaks the tendency to act in accordance with what, with what we regard as our best interests. And the same can be said of the countless martyrs uh, of the church. Now, it's a bit off topic, but I think it's relevant. Who else but God could possibly act in such a fashion? There is no precedent. There's no one like Jesus Christ in history. There never has been, there never will be. No mere man could be like that or ever has. Only Jesus Christ, the man who is God. But as I said, that's a little off topic. The point here is that this tendency towards self-interested bias is inescapable for us. It wasn't for Jesus, but it is for us. It's an inescapable problem. We judge in accordance. We try maybe to do otherwise, but there's always an element of self-interest in the judgments we make. Without the, without the person of the Holy Spirit guiding us, I think that, that invariably we do this. And it's not only in matters of religious truth, it's with respect to all transcendental matters. So it's an inescapable problem, except, you know, can we know God? Well, we're going to do it in our own interest, unless God reveals himself to us. You see, if God reveals himself to us, then we're not troubled by the problem of our bias, because it's not us looking for God in accordance with what we want him to be like, it's him revealing himself to us as he is. If God actually reveals himself to us, and what he reveals is good and just and beautiful and true, and God transcends the limitations of our finite nature, and he is holy, and we are not, if he reveals himself to us in that way, then the things can be true and good and beautiful, and just. And they are so because he says they're so. So he escapes our problem. And that's precisely what is unique about the Christian faith. It's not that Jesus, not just that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. It's that only in the Christian faith it, does God meet us. Does he reveal himself to us? And so we can escape our problem, the stinking fish problem, because God himself meets us. We can trust that his word is the truth because he reveals it. For me, this was revolutionary. As I say, somebody coming from a deconstructionist paradigm where everything is a stinking fish, everything, the Bible's not a stinking fish. This is God revealing himself to me. It's his goodness, it's his truth, it's his beauty, it's his justice, and it's, him, it's himself. When we open the words of Scripture, God himself meets us. Now, as soon as I say that, I, I realize that people are going to say that other religions have sacred texts as well. But that's just an analogy. 
and it's actually a category mistake. There is no book like the Bible. There is no sacred text like the Bible. There is none. Uh, let me start by saying this. Most other religions don't even have a concept of God. So when we call them sacred texts, what we're just saying is that it's important to them. But it's not, doesn't have the same status as Scripture, where we saw God himself reveals himself to us in his word. In the 66 books of the Bible, God was, the Bible was revealed to various men throughout history. The beginning of the book of Hebrews states it this way. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. So it's not only that God has revealed himself in word at diverse time and in many ways to different men, it's also that he's revealed himself in person. Jesus isn't just the founder of a religion, he claims to be God. Muhammad doesn't claim to be God. The Buddha doesn't claim to be God. In fact, the Buddha says if anyone claims to know the way, he doesn't know the way. Jesus doesn't claim to know the way, he says that he is the way. He doesn't, I, I don't, he doesn't say I know the way, he says he is the way. And Christians call themselves the people of the way. And the reason he is the way is because he's God. And this is clear from what uh, he says elsewhere. I'm going to come to that in a minute. But let me stop with the Quran as well, because there is a claim that the Quran is also divine revelation as well. But the God of the Quran does not actually reveal himself. Regarding its authorship, Muhammad claims that it was dictated to him by the angel Gabriel privately, in a cave, not by, uh, through the fathers, the prophets, in many ways, in many portions, at many times, but just to him on his own, in a cave. And the God that is portrayed differs from the Christian God in personal intimacy and even in his, in his knowability. And the names of the God uh, in the Quran don't tell us anything about what God is actually like. They don't tell us anything about what God is like. And that's because they only tell us how God has willed to act. But they don't reveal him. So the action of the gods of Islam don't reflect his nature. For that reason, it's permissible to lie in Islam. It doesn't contradict God's nature. You can lie for the sake of the spread of Islam. For Christians, it's to contradict God's character to do so, because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Therefore, Christians must tell the truth. Islam has no such prohibition. And as I say, his, the, the, God does, the God of Islam does not reflect his nature, whereas Jesus' act of giving himself at the cross for our sins is a reflection of the loving character of the triune God, who is eternally loving in his three persons. It's a reflection of who he is. And we can understand who he is. And in fact, we're told to go and tell everyone who he is. And we can translate the Bible so that they understand and the Holy Spirit is given to all people. 
that they might understand. All who call on the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved. And we're brought into an intimacy with Jesus Christ and the Father because the Holy Spirit, who is God, is given to believers. So there's a personal intimacy there in us, in God. So with respect to the question of, is there only one way to God? There are only two possibilities. There's Jesus Christ, and there's everything else. Is there only one way to God? The answer is just simply yes. There is only one way to God, and it is Jesus. Now, with respect to his unique identity as God, Jesus made some pretty unambiguous statements. I'm not going to go into all of them. John 14:6 says, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, this seems clear enough to me, but perhaps we might uh, see it only as a reference to Jesus as a prophet. Maybe he's just showing the way. Um, And in response to this, uh, his disciple Philip was actually a bit confused. He hadn't yet been given the Holy Spirit, but he was a bit confused. And so he made a request for clarification. Philip asked Jesus, or said to him, uh, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Show us the Father. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. This is quite clear. Jesus is claiming to be the sole way to God because he is God. That's why he's the way, because he is God. And the Apostle Peter states in Acts 4, verse 11 and 12, to the rulers and the elders of Jerusalem, something similarly exclusive. He says, remember these are to the Jewish leaders, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We must be. Not we can be, but we must be. Now I'm going to come back to this in a few minutes. But let's explore the other possibility. If Jesus is in the way, maybe there are other ways. When I say that it's another possibility, as in it's only one, there are immediate objections in a multicultural, multi-religious city like Toronto. I understand that. There are, uh, it ignores the fact that there are people that claim there are many ways. And I, I, it's not that I don't acknowledge that. But my illustrations, it is in the illustrations that are commonly used to make the case that I'm going to seek to make my point. For instance, there are many people in Canada who would say that although there are clearly differences between religions, they all ultimately lead to the same place. You're a Muslim, you're a Buddhist, you're a Christian. In the end, they all end up in the same position. Whereas the view that I've just presented is exclusive, it's narrow, and it's intolerant. Merely presenting it is offensive. To say that there is only one way 
Surely that cannot be. Now, a good illustration for this, and I don't know if you've heard this one before, it's an analogy. It's the blind men and the elephant. Have you heard this one? Some of you will have. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Even if you have heard it, I think it's helpful. And the basic argument goes something like this. There are several blind men who come upon an elephant. They're blind. One of the blind men feels the trunk of the elephant, and he thinks the elephant's like a snake. It's all squishy. He can put his hands around it. The second blind man disagrees because he's feeling the side of the elephant, and he says the elephant's more like a, a, an immovable wall. That's what, the, that's what he's like. The third man finds the first two just simply ridiculous because he's feeling the leg of the elephant, and he says the elephant's like, it, it's, it's a tree. It's like a tree. And the fourth man disagrees with the other three because he's holding the tail, and he says it's a bit like a skinny broom. Now, none of the blind men are wrong, per se, because uh, they have different views and they have different experiences of the reality, but it's actually all the same thing. This is, the, this is the argument. Now you see the point. And they, the argument goes that religious people are just like the blind men feeling the elephant, just encountering the same truth, but they're doing it in different ways. This one feels a leg, this one feels a trunk, this one feels the side, this one feels the tail. But ultimately, it's all one elephant. And they're all talking about the same thing. Now there's, but there's a problem with this view. It's a forceful analogy, but the entire force of the analogy depends on the fact that we, the audience, are in the know, along with the narrator, what an elephant looks like. We've already got the whole picture, right? We already know what an elephant's like, and therefore we can see this. Furthermore, the fact that we have claimed that God, the ultimate reality, is unknowable uh, puts us in a logical contradiction when it comes to the moral of the story. Because we've just said that we have knowledge of something that we've asserted at the outset can't be known. We can't know that there is God. It's impossible because we're all like blind men. But at the end of it, we say, we do know. We, don't, we know that we don't know, but that's a claim to knowledge. And it's not just a claim to knowledge, it's a claim to be able to judge all religions. Right? And far from being more tolerant, which is how it sounds at first, we've not only just said that all the blind guys don't know the truth, we've made the exclusive claim that we know better than everyone, including those who make exclusive truth claims. And at the same time, we don't think we've made one ourselves. We don't even recognize the hypocrisy of the position. So the, uh, the analogy is not only arrogant, it's just totally patronizing. And I say patronizing, as I say, because most religions don't even have a concept of God. They don't even have a concept of God. They don't refer to God. Those are their own words. So they can't possibly be ways to God. They don't even think that God exists. Then they're not ways to God. So this whole analogy is the product of a syncretistic worldview that tries to put every religious expression into one big box. and it tries to include them all in one. Now, it's a, actually, it's one way of looking at it. It's a colonialist perspective 
on steroids with respect to religion. All religions are one. It tries to solve the problem of religion through a political stance. It's trying to be diplomatic. Well, who's going to do this except uh, countries that have acted as empires and have brought under their political regimes different religious groups? And how do we settle the religious problem? Well, by acting as if religion were insignificant. Let's get above that. That's the clean slate approach. Now note that when does Unitarianism and when does the clean slate approach happen? It happens when the, what, the European powers start going out throughout the world and colonizing, encountering new religions, bringing them under their empire. How do we deal with this? This is how. And thus, Karen Armstrong, the well-known uh, writer and prize-winning broadcaster on religion, who's fated by the UN, by the way, for her views, does something very similar when she reduces all religious and historical claims to mythology and psychology. Tom Harper does exactly the same thing here in this country. It's all an ur-myth, ur a, a myth, and they all fit under this. Or it's something, saying something psychologically true. And like a Stoic, uh, Karen Armstrong does it all to escape the particular evidence that is there, the distinctive evidence of history, and she tries to abstract it and make it some sort of universal religion. And at the, at the end of that uh, religion is a nameless and mysterious divinity, an unknown god. It's a nameless god, it's an unknowable god, it's mysterious, but it's there. It's literally the unknown god. And she thinks that the unknown god is the solution to all religious problems. Now this brings us to our passage this evening. Wondering when I was going to get to it. But I, th I hope you'll find that what I've said feeds right into it, because it does. Now, by the way, these, all of these um, approaches that I've talked are, are simply um, illustrations of Romans 125. What people have done throughout the history of, of mankind. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. All variations on the same theme. So let's go to the Acts 17 passage and see how Paul deals with the men at the Areopagus. Let me go to verses 22 and 23. He's already conversed with them. He's reasoned with them daily. Don't neglect that or ignore that. He's been talking to them, reasoning with them. He's disgusted by what he sees, provoked in his spirit by the idolatry he sees around him. But then we come to 22 and 23. So Paul, let me reiterate, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in the, every way you are very religious. Now, I, ha I said it was superstitious. The word there is somewhere in between. Religious sounds like he's flattering them or that he is even saying there's something true in what you're saying. The word there is actually a little less uh, positive than that. This is the problem with translation. It's probably closer to superstitious. He sees idolatry. He's not praising them. 
Jews are not um, excited about idolatry. It makes them feel sick. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown is what it says here. I think a better translation is what you in ignorance worship. That's what it says in the Greek text. Uh, this I proclaim to you. So you don't even know. Here's your altars to the unknown God. You don't even know who you're worshiping. Now let me tell you who it is. Paul is asserting here, though, something very, very important to us. He is asserting that, first of all, we are worshiping beings. We are the homo adorans rather than the homo sapiens. The Enlightenment understanding of humanity is that we are uh, big, basically, brains and bats. We're thinking beings. Paul asserts, to the contrary, to a bunch of philosophers, I can see you're very superstitious. You worship things. And you know what? Everybody worships things. Everybody. We cannot escape it. And not only do we worship things, uh, we're prone to sinful judgments on what we worship. In fact, we invariably do so. So note, please, that Paul's not saying you've got it almost right. Let me just top up. You've got it this close, and now let me tell you who the unknown God is, and now you can add him to your pantheon of gods. He is noting the fundamental schizophrenia in unbelieving thought when he describes the Athenians both with an awareness of God in verse 22 and an ignorance of God in verse 23. Right? He says you are, you've got this sort of sense that there is a God, and at the same time, you categorically deny him. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics, whom he's addressing here, they present variations on what, what I've just dealt with earlier on. The Epicureans, as a school of philosophy, they basically held something similar to the stinking fish philosophy I discussed earlier on. They believed that the gods were made of very, very fine atoms. And they lived in tranquility in the spaces between the worlds. Sort of like, if you want an analogy if you're younger, in the first episode of Star Wars, the metachlorians that were the, basically, that were behind the force. The force is in everything, right? And the first three episodes are actually episodes four, five, and six. And then you get back to the fourth episode, which is actually the first episode. Am I confusing you yet? And then we get the explanation for the force. What, where does the force come from? It comes from the metachlorians. It's this sort of invisible, it's like a gene, quite frankly. It's a genetic or a material explanation for the force that is in everything. That's sort of what the Epicureans thought. There's something that's invisible that explains everything else, and it's between the spaces of things. It's there in that tranquility. As a consequence, these gods are not involved in history at all, in the facts of human history. History was, was lived out by people who had bodies like you and me, and the gods had no interest in that. Uh, the, the body was fundamentally debased, thought the Epicureans. The soul, on the other hand, was something that was good and true and pure and not, and it was disembodied. Body and soul, the two were together, and yet there's no connection between them. 
And what they sought to do, the Epicureans, if you've, heard, you've probably heard of the Epicureans, at least some of you will have. The Epicureans were known, uh, at least to this day, for their desire to pursue pleasure. Right? Desire, but actually what they're trying to do is avoid pain. That's the chief aim of the Epicureans. They want to avoid pain. And so they pursue pleasure of all sorts, because again, it doesn't matter what you do in your body. The body is debased. And they think that everything material is debased. And the only way that uh, they can be like the gods is to think good things, but it doesn't matter what they do in their bodies. So that's the one version. The other version on the, the group here are the Stoics. They're actually not that dissimilar in the sense that they think that the body is evil and the soul is good. But they're also, and they're also marked by a desire to avoid pain. But they're more politically minded, a little more mature, because they recognize that if the, polit the body politic, the public, goes south, that they're going to experience pain. So it's not just an individualistic thing. They're going to do good for the public and preserve the public order. So Stoics are always found in positions of power in government to this day. Most people are Stoics who are in public positions. They're going to try and do good things because they want to avoid the consequences of that going south and them suffering pain. And ultimately for them, they get something like the uh, what I called the clean slate position, the Unitarian position. They believe that God is an all-pervasive and impersonal principle of reason that governs everything. So on to verses 24 and 25. Now these are the ones that he's confronting to. He's speaking to both of them here. Uh, let me read verses 24 and 25. Paul then moves on to say this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What he's saying to them is you, what I just said before. You have a sense of God, yet you deny him, and yet he's going to make the connection. There's something that is, even in the wrong-headedness of what you do, there's something there that is true, and here's what it is. And then he goes on, not to make a connection to their experience, but to talk about the God of Scripture. Unambiguously. He talks about who God really is, the God of the Bible. He contrasts the will of God and his sovereignty with human uh, dependence and need. And his argument is based wholly in biblical revelation. He begins verse 24 with God as the creator of all. He concludes verse 31 with God being the judge of all. That whole, those whole seven verses, 24 to 31, are talking about the God of Scripture. And he's saying, this is your God. Whereas they think his God is personal and transcendent for them, God is impersonal and either wholly imminent, it's in the little minutiae, the metachlorians, or it's totally abstract. Whereas for him, God is personal and transcendent. And yet, he's... He, in, he interacts constantly. He's constantly involved in creation. 
And because, verse 26, he is sovereign over all, it means that events are not random, which they think they are. The Stoics think there's, there's a total randomness to things. So do the Epicureans. There's no meaning to history. There's no trajectory of history. There's just this endless recurrence. And that's because their view of history is totally circular. You've heard of the four, four ages, the Golden Age, and then the Iron Age, and then the Bronze Age, or the... Yeah, and then the Silver Age. How does it go? Well, it begins with the Golden Age, and then there's a fall. Except that it gets, it, it gets progressively worse. Gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then it comes back to the Golden Age. But there's this continual cycle of recurrence, and it never breaks. And you have no effect on it. It's up to the gods. It doesn't matter what human beings do. It's just going to keep on happening. There's no way out of it, and there's nothing you can do to change it. They have essentially an evolutionary view of history. And as far as that goes, I'll just encourage you to read the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel's most recent book, which is called Mind and Cosmos, which he says the subtitle is Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. What a title. Terrible title. But it's almost certainly false. The reason he says it's almost certainly false is because he doesn't believe in transcendental truth. But it's, it, what he's saying is that it's impossible, and it is impossible. Now, in verse 27, let me comment on this briefly. Paul goes to two separate uh, sources, and I've got colleagues in philosophy at uh, Tyndale uh, that I... I actually tease about this a little bit because they want to say that really the way to be a good Christian is to be a philosopher and I say yeah well when Paul really wants to make a point he quotes the poets back to the philosophers and they don't like that much because nobody listens to philosophers or cares what they say which is true now when he makes these quotations when he refers to these poets is he trying to say um, that there's a common ground between them. Is that what he's doing in these texts? Because some people think that that is the case. Are, is he saying that they're on the path to God already? I don't think so. Remember, if you look back to the preceding verses, verses 23 and 24, he's just defined the God, uh, God to be the one who speaks without reference to their pantheism. This is the God you don't know. Let me tell you about him. He's not going to go back and say, well, actually... You do know about him. It's the unknown God to them, right? It's not in all the gods. It's the unknown God. They don't know this God, the God of whom they are ignorant. I'm going to tell you who he is. And then he does so. So he's not, he's not making a connection to pagan ideas or the worldview that lies behind them. He's using the words of their own poets to demonstrate their heart's deepest desires, which their religion contradicts. But there is actually a living and true God. And note the, the reference here. We are in, in him, verse 28, we live and move and have our being. And then verse, uh, uh, still in verse 28, for we are indeed his offspring. These are polytheists, but note the quotation of their own poets refers to one God. He selects very carefully. Very carefully, he's talking about one God. That's the connection but it's just a literary point. He's not saying that their worldview is true in any way. It's totally false. 
And, the, and this is clear when, where he goes from this, verse 29, because he just goes after the sin of idolatry and demolishes it. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, all these gods that you're worshipping. Uh, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now this is the final nail in the coffin for those who want to make some sort of connection between the way the world's philosophy, the world's religions see God and the Christian faith. He says there is only one way, and it's the man Jesus Christ. He has judged the world, he is judging the world, and he will judge the world, and the proof of that judgment is the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you ignore that, there is no other way for you. Because there is only one way. He is the way. Because he is God. And there is no other. And so he doesn't call the Athenians just to adjust their perspective just a little bit. He calls for a total transformation. Note the word. He calls them to repent. Repent means to turn around. Not just a little bit. 180 degrees. Flip right around. Stop going your wicked ways. Turn away from your own idolatry. Martin Luther calls uh, sin in Romans, his Romans commentary, being curved in upon ourselves. It's the way he describes sin. Stop looking at yourselves. Turn around and look to God. You are a worshiping being. Stop worshiping yourself. Worship him. There is only one God. And in verse 31, he uses the uh, son of man eschatology that the Gospels themselves use. The authority God has given to a true man to execute judgment. Now, what is the response to this? He's ridiculed. The Epicureans and the Stoics think that, think that the physical world is evil. So why in the world would God raise a man from the dead? It's a physical body. It's foolish to them. Why would he ever want to do this? They want to be delivered from their bodies. They don't want to be raised as bodies. And so they throw the equivalent of their stinking fish at him. But not everyone does that. Verses 32 to 34. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, a famous man, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. This is, the, this is the, my question for you. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other path to the Father except through him. Not just because he's the way, but because he is God. And there is only one God. There cannot be another way if he pronounces himself the way, and he is God. There is no other way. Simply impossible. So in hearing this, are you going to be like 
Dionysius the Areopagite, and Damaris and the others, are you going to go away with stinking fish thoughts, mocking and jeering? That's my charge to you. So, who's going to kick us off? Yeah, just a little bit. Thank you. Um, I think it was Margaret Thatcher who said, or at least it was Meryl Streep playing Margaret Thatcher, who said, <laughs> it's from the movie, uh, she said, uh, you know, we no longer live in a thinking age, we live in a feeling age. And most of the arguments we seem to encounter against Christianity, I think, are largely much more emotional than rational. Um, and I'm wondering, just sort of from your perspective, as somebody who engages the culture so much, how do you deal with those kind of emotional um, questions, those emotionally loaded responses? Do you uh, try to you know, cut it short? Do you engage with it? How do you, how do you approach that? Well, I mean, that, I think your point is, first of all, Margaret's point as well, or Merrill's or whoever uh, made the point, um, I think is correct. And that was what I was alluding to at the outset and why I spent so much time and talking about a stinking fish argument. I mean, you're not going to find that in your uh, philosophy classes, but I think that it is nonetheless there. Um, how do I deal with it? Um, I deal with it as best I can because, quite frankly, it's not, you're not being asked a question per se, you're being charged, you're being ridiculed. And uh, I think it, that the, we should not ignore the power of ridicule or of appearing to be ridiculous in public. I think it shuts most Christians up. This is why they don't talk about their faith. They're told that it's, as I say, literally unthinkable. And if you hold it, then you can't be a thinker. Well, one of the ways I seek to do it is simply when I'm being, uh, having that charge thrown at me, I try not to respond with hostility, and I try to respond by being thinking, by making clear, coherent points, uh, by addressing uh, what is being said as, insofar as it is coherent, um, by hoisting them up by their own petard, quite frankly. So uh, let me give an illustration. I just did that to some extent. But when they say that um, Christianity has acted in an oppressive fashion, it's been unjust, they've done all this sort of thing, and yet they also say there is no God, I'll say, well, then what are you appealing to for your sense of injustice? Do you not have a concept of justice? Well, which concept of justice is that? When you say that, that Christianity has done barbaric things, by what standard are you making that judgment? So I try and push back, because ultimately they are making um, appeals to a standard which they claim does not exist. And if it does, wh which standard is it? Is it God's standard? They would say it's not. And they're right, it probably isn't, because they're opposing uh, a Christian position. But they have to have some standard. And yet they claim that these standards don't even exist. So you just point out the fundamental contradiction in their position to begin with. And then when that field is open, then you can present your own position as coherently and persuasively as you possibly can. But I, I do admit that particularly on that culture wars program, you, you're getting interrupted constantly. And there is a lot of insinuation and that the stench of being a Christian is all about you. And you, quite frankly, just have to suck it up. That goes with the territory. I'm going to get mud thrown at me, and I know that, and praise God, so is he. Right? So I, I do think that there is an element of Christians need to recognize that the Christian faith is eminently defensible, because it's true. Uh, there is uh, 
innumerable ways one can defend it, but you're going to get slandered for it and you're going to have mud thrown at you and you're, they're not going to say, wow, that was a knockdown argument, I'm persuaded. Look at Paul, what he did in front of the Athenians. There are some that are going to be persuaded, but they're going to hang around afterwards. They're not going to rush forward and say, ah, you've solved the problem for us because the objection is not really an intellectual objection, it's a moral objection. One of the reasons why the stinking fish argument works is because our culture has, has uh, is so fallen in immorality that they, want, they, they don't want to hear that they're sinful. They don't want to hear it anymore. And they assume that everybody else is sinful, and as soon as there's a suggestion that it's not the case, they get very angry, very angry. I mean, telling them that God loves them and that there's a Savior suggests they need saving. That's offensive. The, and the, uh, it's, it's telling that that song that we sang earlier on, um, the third song, In Christ Alone, that it's been, the objections are against that even in churches. The wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to, they, the, the PCUSA has struck this and they will not allow this very popular hymn into their hymnody precisely because of that line, because the wrath of God being kindled against humanity is offensive. It suggests that God is angry at us. It suggests that the atonement is something that we need and that Christ was punished for sin. And he was punished for our sin. That means we deserve the condemnation. That's offensive. Well, it is offensive. It is offensive to those who are perishing. For me, it's the greatest news in the world. Yeah, it, my sin did deserve that. The good news is that I didn't get it. He bore my sin. He bore it on the cross. He bore it once for my sin, for everyone's sin. That's the good news. But if you find that offensive, then you're not a Christian. You're just not a Christian. But that the offensiveness of the gospel is there, and we can't distance ourselves from it, and we should not seek to. Don't ever soften the tone. Never. In fact, if they oppose you, then say it more clearly. But I don't think that's... Yeah, anyway, sorry. Scott, is the problem of, let's say, the atheist not fundamentally one of fear what awaits him after death? Because in Romans 1, we read that everyone knows God. And if everyone knows God, everyone knows there's going to be a judgment. Yeah. And so it's the fear of judgment that causes people to be atheists or to pervert God in some other way. Uh, it's not the fear of God that provokes people to be the atheists. It's their sin that provokes them, um, that they're born in sin. The reason that they don't want to hear that there's a God is because it, 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 it reveals to them who they are in relation to God, and they don't want to repent. Now, there's a, there's a spiral that comes as a consequence of that. Not only do they, they, they do know who God is, but they deny who God is. And they, they deny it everywhere at the same time they know it is the case. This is why if you stand up as a Christian, people will not leave you alone. They're always after you. You cannot declare in public that you're a Christian without somebody coming after you that you've never met. And if you represent Christianity in its orthodoxy and say that there is a God and that he is not only the, the creator and the redeemer, but also the judge, then you are going to be attacked for this. But the reason for it is that this is their own sin and their awareness of their sin and their awareness of that judgment. Yeah, it is the sense of their fear 
of God, but they don't see God as he really is, which is as a, a merciful one. And the reason they don't is because they've never known God's mercy. God hasn't been, they haven't received it. They don't accept it. They, they are fearful because they don't know who he is, but that's because they deny who he is. So I don't know if I'm coming at, uh, I think I'm circling around here a bit, but uh, that there's, a, there's one and then there's two and there's four. It's a spiral downwards. And not only do they love sin, they want it to be recognized and affirmed, which we see. And then they're given over to their depravity. God gives them over to their depravity so that they want approval for it. And as we heard a few weeks ago, in fact, the first week, um, homosexuality is in itself the punishment. It's in, its, in itself the punishment for their sin because it's totally futile. It's corrupt. It goes nowhere. It's, it, it's, it's obvious where it leads, which is to nothing. There's no procreation. Um, I think that's what's meant there. But it's the love of sin as much as the fear of God. Sorry. I hope I'm not going out of the box now. But in Christ alone, as you, you, you set forth, um, why is the doctrine of election so difficult? For Even for sub-Christians? I think because, I mean, it varies from person to person. I think because they, they sense there's a fundamental arbitrariness in it. They see it from a human perspective. And they can't see what's the difference between uh, themselves and someone else. And they're right in one, in, from the human perspective, they're correct. You know, what's the difference between, between me, who receives Christ as his Lord and Savior, and this other person who does not? So there appears to be a fundamental arbitrariness about it, and that doesn't fit with the idea of God being good and just and true and so that that's the, the perception of it. From a, and they, they're looking at it from a human vantage point, I think, which is why you don't begin with the doctrine of election when you're speaking to people. That's not the first doctrine that you speak of, I, I would say. Um, nonetheless, I think it is fundamentally useful, and, and Scripture speaks of it, and it's necessary to hold on to, because it speaks to the reality, is it, is, which is that God saves us. It's holy of God, and if it's holy of God, and he doesn't choose everyone, then he chooses some. And if he chooses some, then he elects them. It's the godness of God. Uh, to deny that is to deprive oneself of terrific comfort. Because when you, as a Christian, fall into sin, which we do as Christians, you start to despair. If you think that your salvation were wholly dependent on your reception of God. Oh, you know, I had this, that time in my life when uh, it was declared to me that Jesus is Lord, and I came forward and I thought, this is fantastic news, but now look what I've done. Look at what I have done. If you thought it was your election rather than God's election, then you're going to keep spiraling downwards. But if you know that God found you out, sought you out, brought you out, saved you, cleaned you up, then you can return to him again knowing that he wants to save you and he's going to continue to save you and he keeps on saving you. You remain a sinner but a forgiven sinner, but people find it difficult because they just get their heads on it around the wrong way, quite frankly. There can be a variety of reasons. I can't speak to everyone, but that's my general observation.
but we don't, I, I think a speaker said, no, you can come forward. We don't, believe, we don't speak of the, uh, the doctrine, but uh, election doesn't save us, Christ saves us. Thanks, Dr. Masson. Um, my question is, uh, in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle, Aslan says to one of the guys who was worshiping Tash. the false god, yeah, he tells him, um, I'll take the services you did to Tash to myself. Um, and similarly, I, th I think there are a lot of Christians that would believe, and I think this is in Vatican II as well, that um, people who never knew Christ and never knew or, or never um, had the chance to hear about him, still if they had the right faith or the right, were living moral lives, they could still be saved in the end through him somehow. Um, can you comment on that? I can. Um, I was expecting the question because it's a, it's a common one. Um, I think C.S. Lewis is off his rocker on this one. I don't know where he gets that in scripture. Um, I do think he, let me just leave C.S. Lewis on it, but I think on this point, he's wholly in error. Where does he get that from scripture, first of all? Would be my first point. What he does, what he is answering to is the common objection, which has been given to me, and I thought it might come up this evening, and it could still be the case, but I'm going to answer it even though it hasn't been asked, which is, well, how about the people, if you say that people are saved through the preaching of the word, through Jesus Christ, and only through Christ, exclusively through Christ, then how about all the people that have never heard of Christ? Lewis's answer and Vatican II answer is that, they, that God will judge them according to the knowledge that they have and nothing else. Well, they're speaking beyond their own, quite frankly, they're speaking above their pay grade there. Vatican does not have the authority to pronounce on things like that. We don't know that. Actually, Scripture doesn't speak to it per se. It doesn't tell us about the people in the uh, depths of the deepest, darkest continents what about their fate. What it does say is if, it's, if God laid it on your heart to be concerned about that, then go and preach it to them. I have found over the years when I talk about the exclusivity of Christ, this is the most common objection, is that it's unfair. That's the objection, you know. Oh, I'm hearing it, but that guy over here isn't hearing it. I think it's just an evasion. The reality is that we are hearing it, and God demands a response from you. Right? So don't talk about somebody else that hasn't heard it and say it's unfair on that person. You are being addressed by God, so how are you going to respond? And if you don't respond with repentance and faith, then you will be justly judged. If you really are concerned about the person on the other side of the earth who hasn't heard the gospel, once you've repented, then you can go and preach to that person. In fact, you're commanded to do so. If God has really laid it on your heart. And, and, how, do, and how do we know how this happens? It's all in God's provision how these things actually happen. But the objection is actually a false one. And he's answering a philosophical objection that he ought not to speak to. Um, I think Lewis is very foolish in this. And uh, it sounds gushy. And I think he's an inclusivist on this. And I think he goes wholly against scripture. And Vatican II is wrong on this. Flat wrong. Let me put it to you in another way. Why in the world would I as a missionary go as a missionary to these places if they could be saved on the basis of what they know already? Why would anyone go to a, a foreign country where they speak a foreign tongue and they have savage practices? Why would I preach to the gospel to them when they can be saved in accordance with whatever little knowledge they have? There would be no purpose to mission. 
Jesus would never send his disciples out into the world, telling them they were going to suffer and bear their cross. He would never do it. It makes no sense. Vatican II is categorically in error. That's my response. Yes? My question is, uh, in Romans chapter 1, verse, I think it's uh, 19, for the truth about God is known to them instinctively. God, capital G, has put this knowledge in their heart. Um, I, I guess my question is, is regarding people that claim to be atheists, um, in your opinion, are they, do they in good conscience believe that there is no God? Or is there a direct refusal to acknowledge God and they're, they're, they're masking that behind this title of atheism? Um, it, well, it goes on in, in 18. It says, they, God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So yes, they know it, but they suppress the truth. And they're always suppressing the truth, and hence the hostility to hearing the truth. They don't want to hear it. Yeah, they know it. Yes, they know it. Of course they know it. That's precisely why they're guilty. They do know it. Simple answer. Now the objection is, there's not some intellectual objection. It's usually a moral, it's a, it's a moral failure which leads them to reject it. But there is a suppression of the truth. But yes, they do know it. Sure. Thank you. It was uh, an excellent talk. Um, I, I had a bit of, a, I guess, an insight, or it, it was expressed to me this week, and I'd never thought of it this way, but it, it certainly goes with my own story. You, you, you can tell me if the thinking or if I'm okay with this, and if it is okay, and I speak to someone else about it, where, what can I do with it there? Where can we go with it? Uh, can it be helpful? And uh, it's simply this. And, you know, for a lot of my life, I went through the, you know, the old thought process of seeing is believing. And uh, then at my conversion, or Christ found me, it then, what it has turned out to be is that believing is seeing. And I've, that's what was put to me this week is uh, believing is seeing. And yeah, that's what I've been doing for the last several years is believing and seeing. And uh, so it kind of sums it all up. And uh, I have a neighbor that I would like to say this to because I think she's on the edge. And... Uh, is this right? And uh, what can I do with this? Um, I think you are correct, and I don't know if I'd put it quite that way, but in order to see, you have to believe. Uh, belief precedes seeing, and hearing the gospel precedes believing. So it happens this way. We hear the truth, we believe the truth, then we see the truth. This is one of the reasons that I oppose um, visual aids in general. The visual, people say they're visual learners and all this business. The gospel is, is preached. It's heard before it is seen. 
it comes not just, and it's not just a question of why people prefer their ears. It's that it's the word of God. It's not the image of God. It's the word of God. We hear it, we believe it, and then we see it. And that's because the light of God, which illumines us, allows us to see. The Lord is my light and my salvation. He doesn't just enlighten me. He allows me to see other things around me. It's the very basis for um, a Christian university. I believe in order that I might understand. So, but there's a trusting relationship that precedes understanding. It's part of what I said that we are fundamentally worshiping beings, not fundamentally cognitive beings. We first worship. If we're not walking in the light, we don't worship the one who is the light, then we can't actually see what is light and what is dark. And his word illumines what is light and dark in multiple areas. So yes, you must first believe in order to see. And uh, this is part of the mystery of evangelizing, is that actually you can be as persuasive as, as you want, but evangelism is a work of the Holy Spirit. It's God himself who brings pre people to salvation. He does use people like you with your neighbor, we pray. But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit who is at work that brings people to faith in him. God the Holy Spirit. And uh, because we can't, we can't actually understand without his power, his presence, his direction. Because he's the light. He's the light of the world. The Spirit brings people to the light and the spirit who is light because we are in darkness the bible doesn't say we're sick in our sins it says that we're dead in our sins are dead in our transgressions what can a dead man do to see nothing he's got to believe first he can't believe unless the holy spirit comes upon him turns him around brings him to receive christ as a savior and then he can start seeing for the first time. Think of all the illustrations of blind men in Scripture, Jesus touching the blind men, right? And then they can see. Yeah, they got to believe first. Now, that doesn't mean you should uh, get rid of the rational apologetic stuff because that gets, array, gets rid of all the false arguments. You can't argue somebody into the kingdom. What, you, what you're doing through apologetics, and the reason we've talked about this here, we get rid of all of the ridiculous objections to the Christian faith, because they're all ridiculous. Get rid of all those. We, we are persuading Christians that there are answers to these stupid questions, and some of them are better than others, but often they're really stupid. We're giving strength to the believer, we're refuting the unbeliever, and we're giving them no excuse anymore. Their real objection is they don't want to repent. And then, and throughout, we need to pray. Because it's God who does it. Right? Does that answer your question? Good. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.